Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, November 27th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, uh, to yet another edition of our program. This program features our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, we'll have dispatches on the continuing response to the Ethiopian peace accord signed recently in South Africa and Kenya. There's been an attack on a hotel in the Somalian capital of Mogadishu. We've have, we will have details on that as well. Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel has paid a state visit to the people of China, holding talks uh, with President Xi Jinping. And the former youth leader uh, in uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, has held a rally after returning to the, to the West African state, uh, having uh, been acquitted of charges by the International Criminal Court in the Netherlands. In the second hour, we look at the security situation in the eastern region of the Democratic Republic of Congo amid the interventions of East African community peacekeeping forces Later, we examine the social problems related to unemployment among youth on the African continent. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, We'll take our musical interlude uh, with uh, music from the West African state of Ghana, uh, from Dasa Sebra Giamina. Let's listen in. Yeah, 
Baby, anyway, you come cool down. Kaka say I'm a miracle, baby.
Thank you. 
Ninguém 
And that was uh, music uh, from the West African state of Ghana. And uh, you're listening to the Pan African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for uh, Sunday, uh, November 27th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, right now, we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. And our lead story uh, in the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, deals uh, with the ongoing response in regard to the succession of hostility agreements uh, between the federal government in Ethiopia and the rebel TPLF. The succession of hostilities agreement uh, between the government and the TPLF is an indication of Africans' capability of of fixing their problems on their own, a South African poet, Chantel Lanzilla, has said. Approached by local media, the poet, uh, Chantel Lanzilla, noted that the Battle of Adwa was an indication that the unified remains strong and uncolonized. The recent uh, agreement gave me hope for Africa's ability to fix their problems, and it would take the continent forward by working and standing together. What is happening in Ethiopia right now is what has happened multiple times in other countries due to the influence of outsiders. They are using the same system in all African countries, and we have to stop it now before it happens again. According to her, Ethiopians and other Africans should remember that the continent's future is bright when they stand together to struggle the unwarranted influence of some interest groups. As the African continent is rich with various minerals and outside influence that aims to instigate tribal conflict, it's causing a severe problem, and Ethiopia has faced the current challenge owing to the fact that it is the heart of Africa. Meddling in African affairs enables some groups to protect the greedy interests of foreigners, and the hand of oppressors is over to the partition of its rich resources. The poet further pointed out that Ethiopians should strengthen the collaboration with other African brothers and sisters to prevent the intervention of outside forces and to solve problems on African mechanisms. It is to be recalled that Lanzella wrote a poem titled Dear Ethiopia to express her delight and support to the truths uh, that was signed in Pretoria. In neighboring uh, Somalia, Malian security forces were attempting to flush out armed assailants from a hotel in the Somalian capital. A police spokesman uh, said earlier today, after the extremist group Al-Shabaab claimed responsibility for the attack, there's been no immediate word of any casualties. Al-Shabaab said in a broadcast on his own radio frequency Sunday that said its fighters attacked the Hotel Villa Rose, which has a restaurant popular with government and security officials. Scores of people were rescued from the hotel, and security forces have launched an operation to remove the assailants, police spokesman Sadiq Dodishi uh, told uh, the state media. Abdi Hassan, a government worker who lives near the hotel, told the media that he believes several government officials were inside the hotel when the attack started. Some were seen jumping the perimeter wall to safety, while others were rescued. He said, the hotel isn't far from the presidential palace in central Mogadishu, where a blast was heard, followed by gunfire. 
such uh, attacks are common in Mogadishu and other parts of the Horn of Africa nation. The latest attacks comes amid a new high-profile offensive by the, the Somalian government against al-Shabaab, which still controls large parts of central and southern Somalia. Extremist fighters loyal to the group have responded by killing prominent clan leaders in an apparent effort to dissuade support for the government offensive and attacks on public places frequented by government officials and others persist. Hotels and restaurants are frequently targeted, as are military bases for government troops and foreign peacekeepers. Last month, at least 120 people were killed in two car bombings at a busy junction in Mogadishu. Al-Shabaab, which doesn't usually claim responsibility when an assault result in high civilian death tolls, carried out that attack. The deadliest since a similar attack at the same spot killed more than 500 five years ago. Al-Shabaab opposes Somalia's federal government, which is backed by the African Union peacekeepers, and seeks to take power and enforce a strict version of Sharia law. The United States has described Al-Shabaab as one of Al-Qaeda's deadliest organizations and targeted it with scores of airstrikes in recent years. Hundreds of U.S. military personnel have returned to the country after former President Donald Trump had withdrawn them towards the end of his tenure in office. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, uh, Miguel Diaz-Canal Canal, uh, Bermudez, the uh, first secretary of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of Cuba and president of the Republic of Cuba, visited China uh, from Thursday to Saturday. He is the first head of state from Latin America and the Caribbean to visit China after the conclusion of the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China. The China-Cuba friendship is rooted in historical ties. Cuba was the first country in the Western Hemisphere to establish diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China. Since the establishment of bilateral diplomatic relations in 1960, despite ups and downs, the two countries have withstood the test of time and international vicissitudes, treated each other sincerely, stood together through thick and thin, and established friendly cooperative ties. The friendship also conforms to reality. At present, unilateralism and power politics are on the resurgence, and the United States' hegemonic act of imposing unilateral sanctions is becoming increasingly prevalent. In the response to all these challenges under the leadership of the two heads of state, China and Cuba, uh, relations have been maintained at a high level over the past 10 years. Cooperation in various fields has made considerable progress and continuously displayed new achievements. The Cuban leaders, China visit uh, was short in duration, but strong in substance and full of results. In terms of timing and results, both sides placed each other in a special position and top priority in their respective diplomatic overall situations, demonstrating continuous consolidation and development of the special relationship and indicating that the bilateral relations will be further deepened and upgraded in the future. China and Cuba are both socialist countries and share a wide range of views on state and global governance, which is an important foundation of their special and friendly relations. 
Based on such broad consensus, the two countries, which are geographically distanced from each other at different stages of development and have significant differences in national strengths, can firmly support each other on issues involving core interests, coordinate in international affairs and regional affairs, and jointly advance forward on building socialism with their own characteristics. Over the last 60 years since the victory of the Cuban Revolution, although progress has been made in many fields, Cuba has been subjected to the brutal, inhumane, and unpopular unilateral sanctions and blockade imposed by the United States and has suffered huge economic losses. After the outbreaks of the pandemic, the United States has not substantially relaxed its sanctions imposed on the Republic of Cuba. It incited local demonstrations, created obstacles to prevent Cuba participating in international cooperation and obtaining international assistance, which resulted in deepening humanitarian disasters in Cuba. In addition, Cuba was hit by lightning and hurricanes one after another earlier this year, worsening the economy and people's life. Taking this visit as an opportunity, the Chinese side has extended a helping hand and offered substantial support and assistance, which shows the essence of a friend in need is a friend indeed. China is Cuba's largest trading partner in goods, and Cuba is China's second largest trading partner in the Caribbean region. During this visit, the two sides agreed to advance high-quality belt and road cooperation and enhance cooperation of mutual interests such as biotechnology, renewable energy, health, economic trade, finance, and cybersecurity, which will help Cuba recover and improve its independent production capacity and technology, as well as help resolve the fundamental problems that Cuba has to face in livelihood and long-term development. This shows the two countries are good friends who trust each other. And uh, finally, uh, in the West African state of Ivory Coast, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, the return of uh, a former uh, youth leader has been greeted uh, by thousands of his supporters. Uh, they cheered yesterday the return uh, to Cote d'Ivoire of Charles Blay Guede, a key figure involved uh, in the struggle that followed the 2011 presidential election. Ivorian President Alassane Ouattara, who earlier this year pardoned his predecessor, Laurent Gbagbo, in the name of national reconciliation, has approved the return. In reality, when I was told to come, it was frank, it was sincere. That is why I think here uh, in Yobokun, uh, the Ivorian authorities have, for having facilitated my return among you, if I see you today, it is thanks to them, said Charles Blay Guede in front of a crowd addressing supporters in Abidjan. Blay Guede thanked the Ivorian authorities for facilitating his return and said his duty was to support the peace process. I have arrived. I will gather all the information in this same place. Uh, we will hold a political rally where I will discuss all the issues. And as the press is here, I ask them to come in a few weeks to a big press conference where we will discuss all the issues. I mean, all the issues promised Blake Whitey, the former right-hand man to ex-president Ron Bogbo, was acquitted of crimes against humanity by the International Criminal Court just last year. With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. 
And in concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website, and that is at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access uh, to uh, this program, uh, the Pan-African Journal, the uh, worldwide uh, Free radio, up computer memory. radio broadcast, all you need to do uh, is go uh, to our uh, website at the Pan-African Radio Network, and uh, that is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Uh, the uh, programs can be shared with other potential listeners uh, by merely copying and pasting the links into emails and sending those emails out to other potential listeners. They can also be copied and pasted onto other blogs and websites, as well as being shared through social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Sunday, November 27th, uh, 2022. And uh, today is uh, the 80th birthday of uh, Jimi Hendrix. And, of course, we just played uh, the Jimi Hendrix Experience from their first album, Are You Experience? Uh, the track entitled Love or Confusion. And uh, right now we want to move into a report on developments in the eastern region of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, there was a recent uh, settlement, a peace accord that was agreed to as a result of mediation uh, by Angolan President uh, Jao Lorenko. And uh, since that time, uh, there has been a deployment of uh, thousands of uh, East African community uh, military personnel in order to enforce uh, this uh, truce. Let's listen to this report on some of the uh, difficulties and prospects uh, of these recent talks and agreements. Hundreds of thousands of Congolese are caught in a conflict between foreign-backed fighters and the soldiers trying to stop them. Rwanda is accused of supporting the M23 group, an allegation it denies. And some powerful nations seem powerless to prevent the bloodshed. This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Adrian Finnegan. A renewed offensive by M23 fighters in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo has forced hundreds of thousands of people from their homes. There are reports of extrajudicial killings, torture and rape. The rebel group has ignored international appeals for a ceasefire and is now marching on Goma, the regional capital. The conflict has pitted the governments of the Democratic Republic of Congo and neighboring Rwanda against each other. UN investigators have found evidence that Rwanda's military is supporting M23 fighters. From Goma, here's Malcolm Webb. More than 200,000 people have run away from the M23 armed group as it's advanced in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. The soldiers started removing their big guns that were in front of our homes and took them away. This is why we have decided to leave. M23 is widely understood to be backed by Rwanda. Uganda has also been accused of providing support. Both governments deny it. UN peacekeepers filmed 500 fighters entering Congo from Rwanda earlier this year. Rwandan soldiers have been photographed in areas held by M23. Their helmets have distinct plastic mounts for equipment, the same as those worn by some M23 fighters seen in this video released by the armed group. Congo's forces have lost ground to M23 in recent weeks. East African leaders plan to hold talks on Thursday. There's been fighting to the north of here, further down this road. It's in the area that's along the border with Rwanda, which is just a few kilometers over there. A lot of the population from the towns where there's been fighting has fled this way into the city of Goma, where tens of thousands of people are staying in camp. People are waiting to see if the heightened diplomatic activity is actually going to change anything on the ground. People have demonstrated in cities across Congo in recent months against Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni and Rwandan President Paul Kagame, who they blame for decades of military aggression in Congo. Campaigners say the international community needs to help. 
We don't have confidence in the East African community to bring peace. We can never expect Kagame to back down and withdraw. Economic and military sanctions need to be imposed on Rwanda because it depends on funding from other countries. Earlier this year, the UK paid Rwanda about $160 million to receive deported asylum seekers. After decades of animosity, France and Rwanda restored relations last year and French President Emmanuel Macron promised half a billion euros of aid. While tens of thousands of people have been forced into insanitary camps, the US has expressed concern over Rwanda's involvement. The UN, the UK and France have condemned M23, but they haven't said who's backing the group. For UK, we know that they have this deal with, uh, uh, with Rwanda. There is also um, France, who is, who is involved with, uh, with Rwanda in Mozambique. It can be a barrier to take uh, a stand for the right decision, which should be to make sure that all this is, uh, is stopped. Rwandan soldiers are fighting insurgents in northern Mozambique, where French oil giant Total has a $20 billion gas project. They wear the same helmets as some M23 fighters. Nine years ago, Congolese forces defeated M23 and its fighters fled to Rwanda and Uganda. That time, Congo had international military support and the US and other countries blocked military aid to Rwanda. This time, people here are waiting to see if politicians from this region and beyond will do what's needed to bring peace and let them go home. Malcolm Webb for Inside Story. Well, as Malcolm mentioned in that report, the U.S. Embassy, along with the envoys of Belgium, France and the U.K., have issued a statement calling on the M23 to immediately withdraw and end the acts that violate international law and to cease hostilities. But that statement stopped short of accusing any countries of backing the rebels. But the humanitarian crisis in the Democratic Republic of Congo is worsening and is spilling across its borders. The UN estimates that at least 280,000 people have been forced from their homes since March. At least 7,000 have crossed into Uganda since October. Children are disproportionately affected. More than 100 have been separated from their families in areas where fighting is taking place. Let's bring in our guests for today's discussion from Kinshasa. We're joined by Fred Balmer. He's the executive director of Ebuteli, a Congolese institute for research on politics, governance and violence. From Lubumbashi, we're joined by Angel de Conge Atangana, the UN Refugee Agency representative in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And from London, we're joined by Mikel Wrong, a journalist and the author of Do Not Disturb, the story of a political murder at an African regime gone bad. Fred, we'll start with you. Who is supporting the M23 in the DRC and why? Thank you very much for inviting me and, and for shedding light on, on this, in this case. Uh, from what we know and from especially the, UN, the last UN uh, uh, group of experts reports, M23 has been supported by Rwanda uh, mainly since the beginning of, of its operation at least back to uh, end of uh, 2021. Uh, we know also from many uh, people in the region that at some point, uh, at one point or another, Uganda supported uh, M23. Now, it's, it's important to mention that the uh, support of Rwanda on, on M23, so on this side, on this 
new M23 uh, remind also people how M23 back in 2012 and 2013 was also backed by Rwanda and then we saw many countries mobilized um, to put pressure on Rwanda which we don't really see. But, but Fred, Fred I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, what evidence is there to suggest that Rwanda is backing M23 at the moment when Rwanda is saying that it isn't? So there are many evidences uh, from uh, footage from drones owned by the UN mission in DRC, the MONUSCO. There is also some uh, Rwandan um, military who were surrendered themselves to the MONUSCO base in, uh, in Ruchuru a few, uh, few weeks ago. There is a um, population, civil society in, in, uh, in Ruchuru who testified to see uh, group of mini, uh, military from, from Rwanda crossing the border. I think the reality of support, uh, of Rwanda support to M23 is known by many people, almost every people in, uh, in the region. And I know for sure that many uh, embassies, Western embassies and other countries, African embassies in Kinshasa, knows clearly that uh, Rwanda and to some extent Uganda are supporting M23. And it's not uh, out of ignorance that people are not calling out Rwanda. Angel, we'll, we'll come to you in just a moment to talk about the humanitarian situation, but first, uh, Michaela in, in London. Uh, why won't Rwanda admit that they're supporting the rebels in, in, in the DRC? And, and what's of interest to Rwanda in the Democratic Republic of, of Congo? Why would it want to destabilize the region? Well, this is a game that Rwanda has been playing since 1996, when it supported a rebel group, the AFDL, that uh, crossed into uh, into what was then Zaire, now Democratic Republic of Congo, um, to break up the camps of refugees, of Hutu extremist refugees, members of the former army that were camping in eastern Zaire. Um, uh, and that, of course, that rebel group ended up toppling uh, Mobutu Sesefeko, the president of, uh, of Zaire of the day. So ever since then, really, you've seen this history of, of Rwanda uh, in, in the southern parts, in, in Kivu and Uganda further to the north, both regarding it really as their prerogative to go into Democratic Republic of Congo, which is a country where the security forces have a real problem um, uh, exerting control, um, and, and using it as their playground, uh, doing as they wish there. Um, controlling the local politics and also uh, either hoovering up the mineral resources or enabling large-scale um, smuggling of, uh, of all the precious metals that we know are in, in Zaire. So it's got a lot of interest in that. It likes to be seen as a player. Uh, and I think what we're seeing behind this new push that, that really just materialized fairly recently is a feeling in, in, on Rwanda's part that it was being beaten in this game by uh, its rival, Uganda. So Uganda, back uh, last year, signed a deal with um, uh, Kinshasa to uh, build roads, uh, infrastructure in, uh, in, uh, in eastern DRC uh, to help DRC to export its minerals. And also, it would allow Uganda to crack down on the ADF, which is a local rebel group. Um, so um, I, I think that there was a feeling in, in Rwanda of, oh, goodness, Uganda and DRC are getting very pally all of a sudden. That's our area. That's, that's our playground. That's our backyard. And we, we don't fancy being beaten to this by uh, our rival Uganda. Um, this, is, this is, you know, we are the key player 
in, in the Great Lakes, and if anyone's going to interfere in, in Eastern Congo, it's us. So I, I think that's probably oh, the motivation, okay. not very attractive one. Uh, Michaela, as we were hearing a few, a few moments ago, uh, there has been some criticism of Rwanda from the UN, the UK, France, the, the US perhaps has been a little more explicit in, in its criticism, but nobody's doing anything. Uh, why? Well, I, your reporter alluded it, to it earlier. There are all sorts of reasons now why the same group of Western donors who support Rwanda, they, they give it considerable amounts of aid every year, um, uh, and they uh, managed to... Um, uh, pulled back on the aid 10 years ago and, and uh, Rwanda accordingly and Uganda therefore then heard that signal and, and scaled back their support for the M23 when it was terrorizing eastern uh, Congo. Um, uh, there's a reason why a lot of those powers nowadays are, are just not that interested. Firstly, they're all distracted by Ukraine, which is their main preoccupation, the war in Ukraine. Uh, but secondly, if you look at France, France has gone from being very hostile towards the, the regime in Kigali to being uh, Kagame, Paul Kagame's best friend. It's relying on Rwandan troops to deal with the jihadist rebels in Mozambique, where it's got uh, Total has these considerable um, gas interests. Um, the British are completely compromised now by the attempt, which is uh, currently bought, but their, their project to um, export asylum seekers who are unwanted here in Britain. The whole idea was that they were going to be sent to Rwanda. That's on hold, but hasn't been cancelled as a project. So those are two key countries, key donors, which normally would be quite vocal in criticising Rwanda, and they've effectively been silenced. They're holding their tongues. They know perfectly well what's going on. I, I speak to some of those, those, those players and those officials, and they know perfectly well what's going on, but they, they don't want to say anything. That leaves the states, and the states want to say... Uh, on good terms with Kigali because um, there is this emerging profile that Rwanda enjoys of being the policeman of Africa. And there's a feeling that maybe, you know, increasingly Rwandan peacekeepers may have to play a role uh, in combating the jihadist threat in the Sahel. So why alienate Rwanda? So everyone's playing it softly, softly. And in the resulting scenario, of course, it's the Congolese who play the, uh, pay the price. Indeed. Angel, uh, what impact is, is all of this having on the people who live there? Yes, uh, thank you. Good afternoon. Um, the effects are disastrous. Um, as you may know, we have 522,000 refugees who are seeking asylum or who are in refuge in Congo DRC. Uh, besides that, we have 5.6 million internally displaced Congolese, topless of the 1 million and more who have sought asylum in the neighboring countries. Only since March this year, we have more than 262,000 persons who have displaced anew. And most of these are actually displaced for many times. And in the territory of Miragongo, where you know the volcano is located, we have 128,000 persons who are displaced. This is a more, a, a yet another series of displacement. And I am glad to hear from the previous speaker that this whole turmoil, if I should say so, has begun almost three decades ago. And there is no, that ha there have been no 
peace. And if I may say, uh, regardless of who is behind this, I believe the most important thing is really that the people here on ground need peace. Okay. They need peace at long last. In the meantime, yes. I mean, there, there, there is no, no peace. Uh, what's being done to care for these people, as you say, who've been displaced, some of them many, many times before? We have uh, indeed uh, uh, many needs, but the people who are uh, again and again displaced definitely are in dire need of shelter. My agency is uh, the lead agency for the shelter cluster for the UN and uh, uh, NGOs. We are striving to bring about that shelter, not least as it is rainy. Uh, it is the rainy season now. Many people are sitting along the roadside and are in schools or uh, public uh, uh, buildings, we need to take them to some shelter. We have been uh, working with the local authority to get a, a, a suitable site for these people, and yet we got one which I understand now the security might not be guaranteed on top of water which is not found there. So really, we, the humanitarian, are striving to bring about the basic needs, including shelter, uh, water, clean water, and food. And of course, we have so many challenges to face, not least among them, the continued insecurity that really needs to stop. Fred, Uganda said on Monday that it's going to send a thousand troops into the DRC to join the regional uh, force which is fighting the rebels. It's already got hundreds of soldiers uh, there under a, a separate agreement. Um, from what you were saying about Uganda's involvement in the conflict in the first place, uh, is the presence of, of Ugandan forces going to help or, or hinder the situation? Well, so Uganda is going to join the, um, the Eastern African, like the DRC this time, as part of the Eastern African uh, Community Force. And I have to say, from a, a Congress perspective, there is a, I have a lot of doubt on, on whether that force as a whole can be really effective in resolving the conflict in, uh, in Eastern DRC, knowing that uh, many of countries involved in that uh, force have um, their own interest in maintaining some sort of security in Eastern DRC. So Uganda has already... Uh, Militaries uh, fighting the ADF uh, with limited results so far in, in uh, Benin uh, area. We, there is uh, evidence that Uganda is backing M23, so I don't know how Uganda can come uh, and, and pretend to be fighting against M23. Similar to um, troops like uh, military armed like Rwanda who will be in a intelligence um, part of the uh, of the force uh, at the same time backing M23. There is also the Kenyan in the region. There, so far, I think there is uh, a couple of hundreds uh, of Kenyan military. And uh, we, it's, it's not very clear whether uh, by adding more and more and more uh, troops without uh, clear coordination, that will lead to uh, in the short Fred, why, why, do, why do people have so little faith in uh, East African initiatives and, and peacekeepers? I mean, this has to do 
on East Africa and, and as well as, as peacekeepers like Monusco and, and others, I think it has to do with uh, the, the, the years of conflict in general. Mikel Arong uh, mentioned that this has been going on for, for years, for three decades almost. Uh, there is uh, people who have been uh, obliged to leave their house three times, four times, five times in the same region by group uh, with, the same, uh, with the same DNA, by the same leaders of, of similar group. They have seen Monosco around for 20 years. Uh, they have seen Uganda as an invader, and then now Uganda is a, is a, is a, a savior. I think we can understand clearly two things, the frustration of, of Congolese people in the lack of results of UN forces in the, in, uh, the SNDRC, and also the confusion uh, of seeing uh, the same people who yesterday came as invaders uh, come back, coming back as a, as a savior, savior slash invaders, because at the same time they are, they are continuing to support um, uh, rebellion in, in the region. And I think the, it, people need to uh, find solutions not only for only this stage of, of M23, only this phase of, of the rebellion, but try to question why is it possible that uh, a group like M23 will uh, keep recycling itself for yep. years after? And, and, and that okay. probably larger question that well, well, Okay, we'll, we'll put that question to McKellar in, in just a moment, as well as, as, as what she thinks of, of attempts to, to mediate peace. But first, uh, McKellar, it, it, are the UK and, and France protecting Rwanda? Well, they're protecting it with their silence. Uh, and they're protecting it by becoming, you know, collaborators with Rwanda in various other projects. Um, so France's support, its aid, its aid uh, to, you know, it's unveiled this major uh, aid, uh, aid grant to Rwanda. It depends on Rwanda for uh, its peacekeepers' work in Mozambique. It's got a lot invested in that total installation. Britain is desperately hoping that Rwanda, which is, the most populated country in Africa is going to take all these unwanted asylum seekers. So it's, uh, both countries are, are basically, you know, um, they're complicit. They're, they, they've been silenced because they are relying on Rwanda. So you have this completely hypocritical and anomalous situation in which a country that is creating conflict, fueling conflict, is part of the conflict in Eastern Congo that, that just goes on and on and on, festering on and on for decades. Uh, is being seen as a, as a peacekeeper and a policeman elsewhere in Africa, which, you know, these are two completely contradictory roles, but apparently the Western powers have signed up for this, this, uh, this arrangement. So, so I, I think, you know, if, if, if uh, the international community really wants to see an end to the M23, they would need to put the, their aid agreements with Rwanda on the table and make it clear that that aid was coming to an end. And what we saw 10 years ago when the M23 was devastating Eastern Congo is that when they did that, the M23 stopped being a problem pretty much overnight and it withdrew, you know, it was disbanded. Uh, we, we've seen this repeatedly. Once, once the West uses its weapons of okay. leverage, uh, it can affect real so, change, but it's not doing that. So without that leverage, uh, Michaela, what are the prospects then for the, these talks mediated by Angola's president? Uh, that, are, that are scheduled for this week. So are they going to achieve anything? It doesn't seem to me that talks are the issue. 
Uh, I mean, you know, who's talking to who? Uh, and, and, you know, we, we have all these sort of these discussions. We have Uhuru Kenyatta meeting Rwanda, but people are still pretending that Rwanda's not involved, and Rwanda's still pretending it's not involved. So, I mean, there's a sort of lack of honesty about the whole situation. I think, I think uh, stronger leverage is going to be required. That's what's happened in the past. Um, uh, and in the meantime, we see, you know, the, the, the M23 gradually heading towards Goma. Goma is going to be a big challenge for the M23 because its fighters are going to be extremely unpopular there. We've seen this in the past. There's a huge amount of anti-Tutsi sentiment, and mostly the M23s are made of Tutsi soldiers. Mm. Uh, so, uh, it, it, you paint a, a pretty bleak picture, Michaela. Um, for, the, for the moment, you think that, that there's, there's nothing to, to end this conflict. I need a pretty short answer from you here. Yeah, I, I, I think the international community needs to wield a big, big stick on Rwanda. Instead, it's being invited to attend COP meetings, uh, and Kagame is being, continues to be fated around Europe. And, uh, and in the industrialized north, you cannot send out both of these messages at the same time. Okay. There, we must end it. Time is against us. Many thanks indeed for being with us. Fred Barmer, Angel de Conge Atangana, and uh, Michaela Rong. Uh, and thank you for watching. Don't forget you can see the program again at any time just by going to the website at aljazeera.com. For further discussion, join us on our Facebook page. You'll find that at facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. And you can join the conversation on Twitter, our handle at AJ Inside Story. From me, Adrian Finnegan, and the team here in Doha, thanks for being with us. Bye for now. Welcome back, and of course, uh, that was a report on developments in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, as well as the broader uh, East Africa region. You're, list you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, November 27th, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with another segment of our program.
Welcome back, and uh, we just heard uh, the music of Jimi Hendrix along with uh, Billy Cox on bass and uh, Buddy Miles on drums uh, with uh, their version of uh, Easy Rider. And uh, right now we want to uh, move into another report on youth unemployment in Africa. This is from uh, Talk Africa. Let's listen in. Hundreds of thousands of Congolese are caught in a conflict between foreign-backed fighters and the soldiers trying to stop them. Rwanda is accused of supporting the M23 group, an allegation. Well, apparently (laughs) there was a mix-up in the files there, Uh, but uh, we'll um, take another break and uh, we'll be back uh, with, uh, of course, more of uh, this program uh, for today. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikwe. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
everybody here because I think it has something for everybody. Something for everybody, you know? Dig this. That's something for one person. I'm going to play this song for you, that little girl there in the green. Everybody over here. Oh, Lord, look at all those things.
Welcome back. And uh, we just heard um, Jimi Hendrix uh, playing with the Jimi Hendrix Experience uh, in May of 1967. Before that, uh, we heard uh, outtake from Room Full of Mirrors from 1969. And, of course, before that, uh, we heard uh, the track uh, Easy Rider uh, with uh, Jimi Hendrix, Billy Cox, and Buddy Miles, the Band of Gypsies. Right now, we want to listen to uh, some excerpts from Jimi Hendrix, along with B.B. King at the Generation Club, uh, recorded on April 15th of 1968 in New York City.
welcome back. Uh, that was a jam session uh, with Jimi Hendrix, B.B. Uh, King, uh, Paul Butterfield, Al Cooper, and others at the Generation Club on April 15, 1968 in the Village uh, area in New York City in Manhattan. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is November uh, the 27th. And um, 2022, and uh, today is the 80th uh, anniversary of the birth of uh, Jimi Hendrix, and uh, we're paying tribute to uh, his art, his life, and his legacy. Uh, Right now, we want to move into uh, a few months later in 1968 with the release of the groundbreaking Electric Ladyland album, the double album. The third release of the Jimi Hendrix Experience in the fall of 1968, which immediately uh, shot to the top uh, of the album charts in the United States. Let's listen uh, to uh, some discussion about uh, the history and the development of that album. Yeah. Messing around with songs that, were, that became part of Axis Bowler's love as well. Yeah, that whole LP means so much. You know, it wasn't just slopped together. Every little thing that you hear on there means something. You know, it's not no game that we're playing. Quite an accomplished keyboard player. I think it's the first time he ever played harpsichord on a record. The idea for the harpsichord was, was right there from literally as, as soon as the playback. Came back, so it was like, yeah, it needs something there. Harpsichord, that'll do nice. This is a combination track with Wawa guitar and a very strange sounding instrument. It sounds like a mandolin, but it's not really a mandolin. It's Jimmy playing electric guitar that's been recorded at 7.5 IPS and then played back at 15, otherwise recorded at half speed. So you get this. Very strange mandolin effect. Gary. was just one of them things. We're in New York, and the studio was free. Tom Wilson had recommended the studio to me. And so we just went down there and tried it. It was good. I met Gary Kelgren when he was still at Mayfair. He, of course, was the creative genius who was working with Jimi Hendrix and Tom Wilson and Bob Dylan and all those guys. And on April 18, 1968, I'll never forget it. Eddie arrived in New York with his black cape, and we picked him up at the airport. We were fortunate enough to to meet up with Eddie Kramer, who really he did know his stuff. I mean, he had quite a classical background. And he came swishing into the New York record plant, and that was also the night we had the first real session with Jimmy. And, of course, Electric Ladyland was our very first big hit. Bass guitar played by Noel Redding, a very funky, dirty sound growling away in the background. For the most part, a pretty distorted sound, but but when it's mixed in with the drums, pretty hard driving force. And here are the angelic voices of Sissy Houston and um, the Sweet Inspirations. This was uh, Aretha's background vocal group. 
Uh, they all thought it was quite strange. And uh, Midnight Lamp sort of threw them a little bit, but they liked it and did a great job on it. You know, for, for a man who really thought that his voice stung and, and was so embarrassed, I mean, this is an amazing vocal performance. He was always laughing and carrying on on the sessions, and you can hear there was a very jovial Hendrix that underlying the intensity of his vocal, at the end he would just explode into laughter and make a joke about something. One of the things that annoys me most I've seen, you know, since Jimmy died and the, the people who ran his estate prior to this, uh, always made out Jimmy to be some sort of tragic character, you know, and uh, sort of gloomy, uh, mystical and all the rest of it. He was anything but that. If I think of Jimmy, I think of him with a smile on his face because he was full of fun all the time. A lot of humour for him was in what he did in his music. If you watch him on stage, you can you know you can see when he's when he's laughing to himself, kind of thing when he's playing something. He got up to his room. He'd have all the curtains closed, all the lights off, and he put scarves all over all the lights so you couldn't see anything in the room. He'd have the telly on, so we called him the bat. He was a great mimic. We used to have us in stitches with these imitations of Little Richard, who we toured with. He had one tail after the other of Little Richard coming out, you know. And you had to see him to believe it. He just became Little Richard. There was so much joking around and jokes and, and, and uh, goofing and, and having just uh, doing voices, imitating people. I mean, just so much fun stuff. Jimmy James, what's wrong with you today? I said, you know what? Go look in the mirror, look at your head. <laughs> your curls done come, I'm done, brother. <laughs> he says, I've tried Brill Cream, but <laughs> it doesn't seem to work these days. <laughs> you know. Thank you very much. The Electric Ladyland session started way back in England at Olympic Studios in Barnes, London, where we cut the basic tracks for Crosstown Traffic and All Along the Watch Show, of course, written by Bob Dylan. Whenever I mention or whenever somebody mentioned Bob Dylan's name, just his name. I mean, the man's eyes and body and mind were just like, <clears throat> you know, you know, he's like, uh, where is he? You know, he's like, uh, he's my messiah. He liked a lot of Dale Dylan, I liked the early day Dylan, but between the two of us, there was some meeting of minds there. He would keep in his flight bag a Bob Dylan songbook and refer to it on a daily basis. He loved Bob Dylan. Well, he did all along the watch there, didn't he? Jimmy's obviously just heard Watchtower and just fancied doing it. I, I'd never heard it before. It was actually like a quick playthrough, maybe of the original. But it was the usual thing, the strum, the guitar, and this is how it goes. So the last part is the easy to go. This is a great example of Jimmy's ability to orchestrate, direct, 
and really focus the attention on all the intricacies of the song. Jimmy played his six string, and uh, we just sat opposite each other. And uh, there was just there was just uh, and Mitch, so we just put it down with <laughs> just the acoustic guitar and Mitch Mitchell. Um, I think Noel was over the road, at the red line or the green cow or whatever it was. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Yeah, so your bass drum got to fit like that, right? In that part right there. So try one more time. Set one, two. It's great how Jimmy is telling Mitch exactly where to put the bass drum part because he knows instinctively what the rhythm should be. obviously have a visitor, none other than Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. Stumbled by the session, decided to help out and play some piano, but uh, I think he valiantly tried for a couple of takes and then, um, as we can hear, it was abandoned and they went back to cutting the basic track without him. Actually, in fact, I think Brian Jones was involved in some of that kind of deal for the percussion effects. You know, it's like anyone that was around here, hit this, let's try and see what works. He would just take a cab to the studio and uh, as when we were doing the Electric Lady album, he, the cab driver said to him, hey, ain't you Jimi Hendrix? He says, yeah, yeah. He said, where are you going, man? I'm going to the studio. Cab driver says, oh, yeah, I'd pay congas. You know, he says, well, go home and get them, come down. And the cab driver went up and got his congas and came down and played in the studio that night, you know. It was a cab driver. But that was pretty typical. If somebody could play something, you know, they could play. Jimi Hendrix playing bass. Probably Noel's P bass, his Fender Precision bass, played upside down. That's when we were having a few problems within the band already. And uh, I said I didn't like the tune. <laughs> uh, so Jimmy, frustrated, running around trying to get a sound out he had in his head and not being able to do it, and grabbing different bottles, beer bottles, uh, soda bottles, uh, knives and everything, trying to get the, the middle section where there's a Hawaiian guitar sound. You know, he just played that with a, with a cigarette lighter. I oh, loved Dylan. I think this became the definitive version of the song. Oh, yeah. I prefer Dylan's version. Right, the second night, it got totally swamped out. I mean, rained in buckets. There was a drought in, in uh, that whole part of Florida, which had gone on for about a month. And I guess sometime the night before the show, they sent some planes out to see the clouds over the Everglades, and it worked. <laughs> and the whole show was canceled. And I remember I got in the limo with, with Jimmy and Mitch, 
and Jimmy was furiously scribbling in the back of the limo. I glanced over, I could see rainy day, dream away. When you hear the beginning of Rainy Day, you can hear, you know, some changes being played, and that's basically just us talking about different sections of the tune, you know. And there's not a whole lot of changes to it. The mo- a lot of it's just in uh, in D. It's just comping in D. Hugh, I remember we talked about doing this. Uh, There's a section there, you know, I think. That's not with us, unfortunately. Right, and then I was playing uh, uh, drums, and like this is, uh, this tune itself was one of my, one of the highlights of my whole career, most definitely, just, just in. Do you remember who was on bass? Uh, there was no bass. Mike Finnegan was playing, was, was, as we know it, shamming. The first thing I did, uh, as far as a bass line, was, was, was that kind of feel. So that was cool, you know. Uh, I think a couple of times I, I did some walking lines, you know, and he said, no, no, don't, don't be walking, just keep... We used to get enough tight, just let it scoop its own way. Let a train worry the worries of the day. Lay back and groove on a rainy day. And that's just the thing that you do on a rainy day. If he had a lyric, I didn't know about it. You know, if he had like a, uh, a form, he, he kept it to himself because, as I said, it was like a very loose construction. The first half was like mellow, and the second half was insane. This <laughs> player, at the end of the tune, we get into a little climb thing. And then we go doing those things that it was all head cues and hand signals and eyebrows and <laughs> something like that I think we were playing like the ugliest thing we could find. <laughs> I didn't know that was going to be on his album, for sure. Hell, I never got paid for the session, man. <laughs> if you're out there listening, I want my money. Because of the fact that he's so important, and it's and, and, and it, and it, it has more to do with being in the right place in the right time than it does with uh, my ability, you know. You know, I, I'm glad I was able to be there, and I'm, I'm glad I was good enough to to take hold up my end. But you know, it wasn't something where, hey, you know, I'm going to do this. It was a night with Dylan and Hendrix, um, just jamming one night. A lot of people just <laughs> walk in and go. God, look at that band. <laughs> Be rocking all heaven up there. <laughs> well, the night I was born, the moon, the fire red. 
like you to hear the, what you played originally. It's kind of fun. All that slapping of the strings gives it that front edge. The session itself was after a rather long evening, and uh, I believe it was somewhere around daybreak, maybe 7 o'clock or something, when we started working on that song. And uh, Stevie Winwood was there, and my buddy Mitch Mitchell, who, a comrade in, in rhythm and insanity. And like. It's interesting hearing uh, this so many years later, and you, it's still fresh. It still feels that it's, um, it was done yesterday. You know, you're revisiting something you've done, and, and I put the faders up, and I feel it, it feels that it falls under my fingers. Really, a little creepy. It's, <laughs> it's like we're entering into the vault or something. Here. Well, we are. Uh, we are. It's amazing. I can, I can really remember the uh, the feeling on the floor of the, of the studio. What it comes down to is the music, and that night or morning, you know, the music works. Isn't it? He had so much rhythm in his voice, and all he could he hear was his voice. All he could hear was his rhythm. <laughs> and that's where the rows always came in. <laughs> if we had a constant row in the studio, when I say row, it was disagreement. It was where his voice should be in the mix. I mean, uh, he always wanted to have his voice buried, and I always wanted to bring it forward. And he was saying. I've got a terrible voice, I've got a terrible voice. I says, you may have a terrible voice, but you've got great rhythm in your voice. I says, and it's as important to the song, your diction and the way you deliver words. And uh, it was always a, always a controversy between us, which I always would by pulling his voice forward. Me and Dave Mason. You know what else is on here? No. Did it, did it, did it. That's Jimmy with the code. The kazoo is an instrument that's always been associated with hee-haw and uh, hillbilly music. And he was doing cross-town traffic and couldn't seem to get the sound that he was trying to express across. And from someone in the studio, Jimmy said, you've got a comb on you, man? Give me a comb. Somebody get me, like, some cellophane. And if you take a comb and you put cellophane across it and blow through it, it gives a kazoo sound. So the guitar track on the solo and the, uh, the figure at, uh, on cross-town traffic is the guitar is laced by the sound of a kazoo, and that's Jimmy with this particular comb, which I just thought was like amazingly brave for someone to do. Jimmy would reach and grab anything he possibly could get his hands on if he thought it would produce the desired sound for him. Guitar and bass together. What were we doing? There must have been some good reason. <laughs> probably we would run out of tracks. <laughs> Excellent rhythm player. And I think that a lot of that had to do with the time that he spent, uh, you know, backing other people and you know, playing with little Richard and Isley Brothers and people like that. You know, like your basic, you know, like... Uh, 
R&B chops, you know, like learning how to, to fit into a band in a subordinate role. And there's a lot of guys that can play, a, you know, a handful of solo kind of things, you know, that, that don't have the first clue of how to, to, to comp changes and stuff, you know, and he certainly knew how to do that. He was playing rhythm in parts, but it was really lead, but it was rhythm. Uh, he just had this, these great big arms. Yeah. To do it. Track the chords for that. I was, me- I was remember I was messing around with those jazz chords, and Jimmy came in the studio and said, "Whoa, what's that chord? What's that yeah. chord?" So, ch- so I showed him the chord, and he, and he said, "Well, you play." I said, "No, I no, no, never you heard play. of anything specifically a jazz chord, do any? It was a jazz chord. It was an mind scroll. I mean, the, the great thing with recording Jimmy was the rule was there was no rules. That's what made it interesting. That's what made it exciting. 22nd April 68 recording. Went to the studio, did Little Miss Strange. Yeah, he had a song called Little Miss Strange, just the beginning track on uh, one of the sides, the fourth side of the LP. He has a beginning track on the side. A couple of nights I went in, and Hendrix didn't turn up at all. So on one night, that's when I did Little Miss Strange, you see. I'd written the song, and uh, there was no one there, so I thought, why not? Such an English-sounding track. I mean, only as Noel could do it. He's a, he was a great rhythm guitar player. Before he was the bass player in the experience, he was a rhythm guitar player, and it shows on this track. He's playing acoustic guitar and the two electric 12-string rhythm parts. 28th of April, 68. Went to the session at 2 o'clock. Finished mixing Little Miss Strange. Did nothing else. Finished at uh, 10 o'clock. Jimmy, on the other hand, is playing the wah-wah with that strange sound. I put the bass on top of it. I put another rhythm guitar on top of it. And then uh, Hendrix, whenever he turned up the next day or whatever, I played it to him, and he liked it, and he put the guitar on it. <laughs> so it's like... I think Jimmy was really taken with the quirkiness of this track, and I, he wanted it on the album, I think, as a, a, a nice shot to know, here I may have a song on my album. Noel found this whole period very difficult. He had a certain frustration, because Noel, before he joined Jimmy, was a, was a guitar player. And he, he only started playing bass for, the, for them. He more or less got the job because of the way he looked. And Jimmy to, started, you know, doing a bit of the bass himself in the studio, etc., etc. Noel didn't want to sit there all night waiting to maybe not even work at all that night. I used to get to the studio at six o'clock to go to work, and Hendrix wouldn't turn up until three in the morning. So we was, we was expected to sit around and wait for him. You see, which uh, I wasn't prepared to do. By the time we got in the middle of Electric Ladyland, we're working on songs that they'd never worked on in terms of uh, rhythms or anything. They were just outlaying ideas. So the, the songs started getting almost written in the studio, which takes a, an awful long time. It's very boring for a producer. <laughs> Imagine doing 40 takes of this. A lot of them. In real terms, I think he was losing his nerve a bit, you know? Didn't quite believe what he was doing. And it was like, wanted to do it over and over again. And he always, by the time we'd started doing Electric Ladyland, he always had hangers on in the studio. And he couldn't say no. He found it very hard to say no. 
And uh, of course, when he went round to the scene to jam, and then come back dragging an entourage of 20 people into the control room, it, it became out of hand. And I think in the beginning, Chaz said, look, this is not going to happen, Jimmy. You can't have all these people partying and cluttering up the hallways and the control rooms. We, we can't get any work done. I mean, New York's a capital of hangers-on. And uh, by the time we're getting in there, there was 10, 20, 30 people sitting around the studio, and he started playing for them, not for the, not for the recording machine. So you'd play a thing, and these 20 hangers-on would laugh at something he did, so he'd do it again, and again, and again, <laughs> and again. <laughs> so I used to go in there and sort of go in there the booth and sort of say, oh, excuse me, can I sit down? They say, hey man, who are you? I'll say, well, I'm just the bass player in the group, thank you. If you were a car mechanic, you wouldn't take your friend along to watch you repair a car, would you? Chaz didn't like the hangers-on, but they were Jimmy's hangers-on, and so it was Jimmy's decision to have them around, and I don't think Chaz liked any of that. Many, 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 many takes of this. I think by by the end of the, about the 45th take, Chaz, who was producing this track, said, "See ya." Just said, "I'm going." I've had enough. You know, you're not listening to us like you used to. This is when you decide to start listening to me again. I'll be there. Goodbye for now. Chaz had quite a valid point. I mean, you know, time is money, and you know, the House of Rising Sun was done by Mickey Mouse for ten pounds or. Ten dollars, and it's first take. Everything. My first wife was pregnant. She told me just at the time. I thought, let's get the hell out of here. You know. Huge mark upon everyone. First of all, it was about the insanity of people burning their own neighborhoods up. And it was like, you know, why you burn your own brother's house down? There's no reason to burn your own self, baby. Yeah, it's about time to get together, brothers. The outrage and the anger that the inner city folks felt at that time about having a leader like Martin Luther King killed. Then a couple of months later, Robert Kennedy is assassinated. I said the truth is straight ahead, so don't burn yourself instead. Try to learn instead of burn, hear what I say. In one way, everybody was a lot more serious about what they were doing by the end of that year. And then guys were getting gunned down, and you were going, well, yeah, no exchange. Him, and I imagine a lot of soul-searching on his part, like for everybody. The band itself was political. But the very fact that in 1966 that someone would even have a band that was integrated was a political statement. At the end of the song, there's a something with, uh, that Eddie does with uh, panning the guitar sound that sounds like a cat going <laughs> The sound of a panther at the end of it could mean a lot of things. There were some political groups around at that time that were extremely, extremely uh, powerful and potent in the consciousness of this country. Uh, <laughs> Once Chaz left, Jimmy took over and began to experiment with sounds like in 1983, A Merman I Should Turn to Be, which is an 18-minute sci-fi epic, which was the complete opposite of the Chaz-influenced four-minute pop-structured song. 
and any sound that Jimmy could dream up, we included. Listen to this. This is Jimmy making air sounds with his mouth. Pretty neat sci-fi effect. He was always writing lyrics, or what looked like poems, in fact, I think, um, on scraps of paper, even, even writing pads. He wrote in a restaurant. I've seen him write in, in cars, backs of cars or limousines. I saw him write in clubs at bars. He was constantly writing, and he had these little pads that he'd carry around with him that he wrote on all the time. He's always making notes all the time. He's always talking about uh, psychedelic things. Spaceships and all that sort of stuff. Where can you be, baby? Where can you be? That is Jimmy doing all the background vocal parts. Fantastic gospel sound that he's created. Just two voices. And with Al Cooper on piano doing great gospel parts. And even if the harmonies sound a little strange, when you put it in with the whole band, it's just a wonderful blend. He's just had this incredible ability to be able to pick the strangest notes in harmony and stack them, and it just fits. And here comes the rest of the band. went and did some photos in Central Park with Lynn Eastman. Dear sirs, here are the pictures we would like for you to use anywhere on the LP cover, preferably inside and back, without the white frames around some of the black and white ones. Please use the color picture of us and the kids on the statue for front or back cover. The sketch on the other page is a rough idea, of course, but please use all the pictures and the words. Photos were good by Linda Eastman, Linda McCartney. We just said, well, we're going to Central Park. And we just sort of sat there and did the photo session and got all these kids sitting about and we just sat there and had a bit of fun. Thank you very much. We had enough personal problems without having to worry about the simple yet effective layout. Thank you, Jimi Hendrix. A guy called David King, who's art director at um, Sunday Times Color Magazine, he called me up and he said, <clears throat> we got this idea to do Jimi Hendrix Electric Ladyland, and um, the idea is a bunch of nude girls. There was the artwork that came out in England that Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp put together. As far as I was concerned, wasn't the grand old tradition of, like, let's see who can upset, you know? I didn't care. I think David King and Stamp uh, went to nightclubs in London and um, got these girls to come down, I think saying that Jimmy was going to be here. You know, Jimmy had a great love of women, and the idea of that sleeve was 
they were just beauties from the street and um, they were all sitting there posing and they all loved Jimmy. I mean, that was the idea, that was the shot. It was meant to just show a sort of freedom. The nakedness was like a freedom. It wasn't sort of like a sexual pose or anything. When Jimmy saw the final artwork of the English cover, which he had had no control over, he was very, very annoyed because it was the antithesis of what he wanted. He thought that the naked ladies was an insult. It was all down here and it started looking like a ladies' shower room. Someone said that there'd, there'd been a big thing in the paper about uh, the experience of got this album out with all these women on the front of it, and there was a huge outcry, but it was great publicity for us a lot. They still had their knickers on and their underwear. So they said, oh, you've got to take those off, and they said, no way. So I think they're making like five pounds each. So they said, okay, uh, another three pounds. So, Was that kind of some kind of statement? When Jimmy got hold of the reference acetate, which was a test of what the final disc was going to be for Electric Ladyland, it had been cut over at CBS Studios. Now, the white-coated technicians over there, in their infinite wisdom, got the name wrong, and it came back on the label written, Electric Land Lady. I'm sure, he, A, he wasn't pleased about that, after all the hard work we put in, and B, the sound of the acetate was not what was represented on the tape. It was got Jimmy playing backwards guitar, a Leslie guitar, regular guitar, bass guitar, and Mitch doing speeded up drums. It's full of feeling and emotion. There is a slight difference between a virtuoso and a musician, and he was both. You know, he was a great accompanist. He had an understanding of you know, arrangement, voicing, chordal movement, and he was virtuoso as well. He was cutting tracks with just guitar and drums. The only track I saw him do with the band was a track we did. Jimmy played quite a lot of bass on this. And for, from a drummer's point of view, I wish that had been there for me right from the start. It's just rhythm guitar and drums. By itself, it doesn't make any sense, one would think, and yet you put the drums to it, and it becomes a wonderfully complex rhythm track. He didn't read music. Uh, he didn't use musical terms like arpeggios and all that stuff, uh, those type of terminology. Jimmy talked about colors a lot and sounds. He said, make it sound like the ocean. Well, I want to sound. I want to sound like the wind here. And there was nobody else doing what he could do on guitar. There was nobody else at all. He seemed to get inside the guitar with his personality. Right? He didn't seem to be. You can hear all the influences some of them and then some of them he just steps aside of all of that and it melts together and produces new things the public's perception of him was based more on this wild guy you know than than it, than it was based on you know this innovative musician you know I want to show you there's three Beautiful falsetto background vocal parts, as well as the lead voice on top. 
He still has this charm and grace about his music that people just still adore. And it's just, it's just relentless, man. I heard him as a guy coming out of the blues, you know, I mean, a, a really, really good blues player, but had gone, had taken it to another place. Similar to... Welcome back. And uh, that was um, a wide-ranging discussion on uh, the... Electric uh, Ladyland album, uh, which uh, was released during the fall of uh, 1968. And uh, that is going to conclude our program uh, for today. Uh, you've been listening uh, to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access uh, to this program, all you need to do uh, is go uh, to our website, and uh, that is at the Pan-African Radio Network. Uh, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out with the actual album itself, Electric Lady Man, released uh, in the fall of 1968. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
souls are made of desire. From far away, as Jupiter saw the Down by the middle of 